attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Hey, it's Jeff here. What you're about to hear is the recording from our weekly Context and Clarity live show that I co-host with Catherine McPhail. Every week, we bring in a special guest that will help us dig even deeper and find even more clarity around the most popular context and clarity topics. This version of context and clarity is simulcast to Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitch. Oh, and did I mention that they're live? We're operating without a net, so we may hit a few rough patches and stumble every once in a while. But I think these guests and these conversations are important enough that we really shouldn't keep them to ourselves. So with that, let's jump into this week's episode. This episode of Context and Clarity is supported by Twinmotion, the simple real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. To learn more, visit Twinmotion at twinmotion.link slash clarity. This episode of the Context and Clarity podcast is also supported by Section Cut, the interactive virtual conference from our friends at Monograph. Learn more at sectioncut.com. All right, Entree Architect community, it's 4 p.m. Eastern, which means it's time for the Entree Architect Context and Clarity Live conversation for Thursday, September 2nd. Believe it or not, we made it all the way to September by now. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, As you get here, say hi. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from. Christian Nielsen, I see you. He's here. He wins the crocheted bathtub today for first in to our conversation. Great to see you, Christian. They're on Facebook, and we have a Facebook user that says hello, which reminds me that um, if you would rather show up with your name and your profile picture rather than Facebook user, uh, Facebook has these rules, these privacy policies, which we respect and and uh, appreciate. 
but the privacy policy says that your information, because you're coming to this conversation from a private group, cannot be released unless you give Facebook permission. So if you want to show up with your name and your profile picture, there is a URL at the bottom left of your screen right now, chat.restream.io slash FB, as in Facebook. Go there, uh, go through a, a very, very quick process, and you will allow Facebook to talk to Restream, which is the platform that we use here. And you can show up as yourself and look just like yourself on the screen. If you're like Kurt over on Twitch, hi, Kurt from Flint, Michigan, glad you're joining us. You show up just fine, different different settings there, different policies there. Or if you're like Brian on YouTube, hi, Brian McCartney, son of uh, long-lost son of Paul McCartney, glad, glad to have you with us from YouTube. Uh, let's see, do we have any LinkedIn's yet? Haven't seen anybody from LinkedIn yet, I don't think. But uh, it's only the Facebook folks that need to worry about that chat, chat.restream.io slash FB. But as you get here, say hi, Barry Reed. Welcome back from Scotland on uh, LinkedIn. Glad you're joining us. Um, say hi when you get here. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from. If we've never, If we've never met before, my name is Jeff. And I'm in Indianapolis, and I come to this Context and Clarity conversation every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern. And today I am joined with, or joined by, who are you? <laughs> I'm Catherine, Catherine McPhail. Hello. Hi, Catherine McPhail. Thanks for joining us. Unfortunately, from uh, the flooded Northeast. Mm. Yeah, I think we're just going to have to get used to it. Maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, yeah. Ida is wreaking havoc as she runs up through the the uh, right half of the country, I guess, and up towards the uh, northeast. So hope everybody out there continues to be safe and well. Uh, I don't know that our friends um, down in New Orleans will be able to watch or listen to us for a while, but I know some other friends and uh, in Louisiana, Mississippi, they are okay. So that's a good thing to know. Um Ed McDonald, greetings from Indianapolis. Hi, Ed. Glad to have you with us today. Um, we've got a good show lined up today. Our topic today is architect as developer. It's a really popular topic amongst architects, maybe especially small firm architects, but um, I, I think extending even into medium size and, and a little bit larger firms. But I know it's popular in the entree architect community. I know it's popular beyond the entree architect community. Uh, we've been talking about this theme of architect as developer all week this week. So if you're not familiar with Context and Clarity, every day, every weekday, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern on uh, on the Clubhouse app, we have sort of a preview, what we call it our coffee talk, our 30-minute coffee talk. And then in the afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern, we have our Context and Clarity conversation inside the Facebook group that many of you are coming from right now, the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. And we take the theme from the special guests that we're going to talk to in our live session on Thursday, like we're about to do right now, set that as the theme for the week, and then we have individual topics every day. So to give you a little bit of a rundown of what this week looked like, we started on Monday by asking the question, uh, if you were an architect and a developer, what would you develop? That's the question for Monday. Then Tuesday... Um, maybe you'd love to be a developer, but you can't quite bring yourself to jump in with, with, uh, both feet. So the question was, what are baby steps that you can take towards being an architect and a developer? 
That was a really interesting conversation on Tuesday. And then yesterday, Wednesday, maybe you were inspired. Maybe this is something that you'd really love to do. You're not quite sure how to do it. Still got more to learn, as we all do. But um, there may be some obstacles in your way, real or imagined. So the question yesterday was, what's stopping you? from becoming a developer. And I think that's a great lead up to this conversation today with our special guest that I'm going to introduce here momentarily. And like I said, it's all about architect and developer. Again, popular topic, uh, popular topic all throughout the architecture community. So great to have you, all of you joining us. Uh, Mark LePage, I see you over there, sunny and clear, Lake Wiley, South Carolina. You're back at Lake Wiley again uh, from uh, YouTube as well. It's Lolly. From uh, LinkedIn, great to have you there, uh, Nicole. We see you in Arizona. Oh, Nicole is double teaming; she's on Facebook and Twitch at the same time. I don't know if anybody else caught that move, but that was pretty slick there, Nicole. Thanks for for joining us from two different spots. Uh, great to have you, and everybody else is joining us. Great as you as you come in, keep saying hi, keep letting us know that you're here, uh, keep letting us know where you're joining the conversation from. Because another thing that I really enjoy, I don't know. I may be the only one, but the other the thing that I enjoy is seeing where these conversations spread. So we've already seen Barry. He's in Scotland. Um, as I look down the list of names that I see so far, I think we have made it all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States uh, today. But we will likely uh, jump another ocean or so. Uh, we typically wrap all the way around the world from Anaheim to Australia. So uh, that's the great thing about these conversations as well is that they are truly global, truly worldwide. So if you are somewhere besides the United States, I'm in the, in the U.S., Catherine's in the U.S., our guest today is in the U.S., um, apologies in advance because some of the perspective that we share will certainly be uh, U.S.-centric. If you have a different perspective from wherever you are in the world, please share that because we like to know um, you know, what's it like in Australia? What's it like in the Philippines or South Africa or Ghana or Nigeria or Scotland or wherever in the world you are? Just checking off kind of some of the places that uh, we might have some friends joining us from today. So with that, uh, Catherine, what, what, do I, what have I missed? I feel like I've missed something. Did I forget anything? I think, you, I think you covered it, but I think uh, it's interesting that you think of Anaheim to Australia as being all the way around the world. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but I would think Anaheim go that way. That you go. You go that way to Australia. So <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. Yeah, thinking. it totally depends on the uh, on the direction that you go. Well, right. Obviously, you go the other way to wrap the globe. Yeah, just in my mind, it's going the other way. That's all right. Random I, thoughts for me today. <laughs> Deep I, thoughts. I, that's my reflection on your intro. <laughs> okay. Deep <clears throat> thoughts with Catherine McPhail today. That's right. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, let's not waste any more time. Let's get our special guest in here today. So let me make a quick little introduction here. Our guest today is an architect, an author, a developer, and an entrepreneur. He's the principal of PostScript Studio in New York and the author of Architect and Developer, a Guide to Self-Initiating Projects. James Petty, welcome to Context and Clarity. Hey, guys. How's it going? Really hey. good. Glad that you could join us. Um, you and Catherine both both shared in the green room backstage before we got started. You're both in the Northeast, and you both uh, have gotten a lot of water. So I appreciate uh, – actually, I appreciate both of you joining us. Uh, and if anybody notices the camera kind of moving a little bit, they're 
both James and Catherine are floating right now. So, um, so thanks for joining us, James. It's been an interesting night for all of us, I think. It has, it has. And for anybody else out there, um, you know, we, again, we do hope that you're, uh, you're safe and, uh, and staying safe and keeping those around you safe. Tony Roberts is joining us from New Zealand. There you go. There's a shout out. We've, Depending on the direction we're going, Catherine, we've made it around the globe at this point. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> hey, you uh, go. So, you know, for me, the worst thing about having these rainstorms in my own basement flooding is I wonder how my projects are doing, the ones that don't have any roof on them yet, or, you know, if anybody else's basement's flooding and I'm going to be getting that kind of call. clients that wanted to go for the vapor barrier instead of the waterproofing to save a little bit of money. Exactly. Yep. But nobody's yep. called yet, and it's pretty late in the afternoon, so hopefully we're clear there. Yeah, hopefully. But I think that's when back in in my past, one of my past lives, where I, I was doing more uh, architect led design build. These were the stress times for me. Right, we're building, we've designed something, we're building something, and now there's you know lots and lots and lots of rain. That's I completely understand where that stress comes from. Completely understand. Uh, one one more reminder in case anybody missed it. Uh, if you're on Facebook and you're showing up right now as Facebook user, um, we can call you Facebook user if you'd like us to. But if you'd rather us call you by your name and, and identify you by your beautiful profile picture, then um, there is a URL at the bottom left of your screen right now. It's chat.restream.io slash fb. All you need to do is go to that URL, give Facebook permission to let your information out to restream for the purpose of this show, and uh, you'll show up as, uh, like I see Rod right now, Rod Warner, who says, hello, James. Uh, we see Rod and his profile picture there. So if you want to be like Rod, <laughs> go to chat.restream.io slash FB, and also a shout out to everybody that's listening to this in the future in the uh, podcast version of this that'll come out on uh, Monday. So great to have all of you listeners with us as well. James, um, as you know, and we talked about this backstage, lots of conversation about Architect as Developer this week. And so I'm always curious, um, in, in our audience this week and in the comments this week, we had a mix of people that said, hey, I, I would like to do this, and people that have experience, that shared their experience, which we really appreciate. We appreciate everybody sharing their experience and their knowledge and advice and everything. So the first question I think we've got to ask you is, what got you interested in development? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I went to undergraduate uh, down at the University of Houston, and then afterwards I went to go work in Europe for like five years and, um, and decided to go back to graduate school and was able to get into Yale University. And, and when I went there, I sort of went there with the, you know, I already had a Bachelor of Architecture, so I wanted to go to graduate school with the idea of really polishing myself off and also trying to really hone in on what it was my life, the rest of my life was going to be about. And so I, I took that opportunity to really focus on professional practice in a lot of respects. Um, I always knew that I wanted to start my own practice, but the, the, the sort of like getting, getting to that point seemed to be so mysterious. Or either you're born wealthy and with a lot of connections, or you're lucky, I guess. Um, and so I spent a lot of my time in graduate school and seminars focusing on starting a practice, on how people generate revenue, uh, and, and these kinds of things. And I did a, a little self-project where I interviewed um, 
the founders of Shop, uh, Work AC, and Allied Works, etc., on how they started their business. What, what were the first projects that they did? What was that nitty gritty first few years of being completely broke and working out of their basement and 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 before they got so famous in the way they are now? Um, and and you know that started getting my brain turning. I took a class with Keller Easterling, at, uh, who who told us in order to get into the class we had to bring a hundred thousand dollars. And she didn't mean cash. She meant how do you find a hundred thousand dollars out there in the world that could fund a project? Um, and so instantly, we, none of us had any idea this was going to be the premise to even getting accepted into the class. But 12 of us had to go out and figure out where are grants, where are programs where people have money that need things to be built. Because at the end of the day, there's there's a lot of money out there and there's a lot of need for things that exists. And sometimes you just got to put the pieces together and you can make kind of make your own thing. And so this whole time, I, my head is kind of turning. I, you know, I'm starting to think about how are all these ways that I could start my own practice without actually having to find a client. Um, I started to become aware of um, Terry Tamarkin in New York City and DDG who were doing some, who were developing their own work. And suddenly so it was like, wow, there's a couple of these architects that are sort of doing their own development. And the more I started looking into it, the more I started finding more and more and more. And I started talking to these guys, talking to other people, and they were like, oh, you should go meet this guy and that guy. And, and suddenly it was just like, wait, there's actually a lot of people doing this, a lot more people doing this than I think you realize. Part of which is because some of these guys don't necessarily advertise that they're doing this because there's no need. They're, you know, most architects are advertising on the websites to find more clients. These guys don't need clients; they need financing. And the banks don't give a uh, <laughs> uh, explicit about uh, about what your pretty buildings look like. They want returns, um, and so they don't necessarily advertise it, but they're doing it. Um, and so basically, I started down this road as writing a sort of um, a guide to myself on how to, how I wanted to sort of move through my own professional life. Um, I out of graduate school, I worked for an uh, an office in the city, uh, doing a a school in Brussels, and then afterwards ended up working for Peter Gluck for five, the last five years doing design, architect led design builds in New York and Connecticut. Um, and and then just recently left there to finally just pull off the band aid and, and do my own thing. Um, and so it, it's, it's, to me, it's always been about how to launch a business. And a lot of the people that I spoke with, you know, it wasn't necessarily their end goal, or maybe they were smaller practices trying to build up, or they were practices trying to, you know, foster a nest egg for long-term investments. Um, or it was people that was just some, you know, interested in, in, in it for an academic purpose or wanting to do work that they were otherwise not going to get hired to do. They weren't necessarily all in it. Because they ultimately wanted to be an architect uh, and developer, they kind of used development as a method to get to what they were actually interested in. And most of the time, they ended up getting financially rewarded for that. Um, I've also been very interested on the ones who are not financially rewarded on that because that's the ones that people don't talk about enough. Um, and that's, you know, the real risk of it all. And I think ultimately that's what all of this is. It's what I've really learned about it is it's, it's just an, an amalgamation of professions to try to make things more efficient and to consolidate uh, and align financial interests in a project, which is what most of us are interested in. And most of us got into here because we want to make buildings, we want to make schools, we want to make something in our community. Um, and architecture is just a key a part of that. And I think you touched on this earlier in the week that architecture is really a late part of that whole process. You know, the, the developers are, 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 are the ones that are setting the foundation of what a project really is and what Kevin Cavanaugh out of Guerrilla Development calls phase zero which is where you know it's the foregrounding of a project on what it is. Is, is it a residential building? Is it a commercial building? Does it have these kinds of aspects? Is it, how much money are we going to set aside for public programming and all of that stuff? Architects generally never get a sense or a say in any of that. 
But if you go back to our academic roots, that's what a lot of us are interested in. And so the only way to really get into that foregrounding is to jump in on that ground level uh, part of the whole building process, rather than just waiting for somebody to come to you with a program and a contract and say, here, do this for a 6% fee and uh, do it tomorrow. Yeah, you know, the, you said that, and you, you're in danger of setting me off, off on one of my tangents <laughs> up on my, uh, my soapbox. But the way that you just said that, you know, really resonated with me because um, here, here's a question for everybody out there, right? If, you, if you're starting your work with programming, maybe even feasibility study, how late in the game are you, right? If that's your starting point, how late in the game are you? You, you I, I don't remember exactly how you just said it, but basically someone's dictating to you at that point what the project already is or already yeah. dictating what that project is. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a new way for me to think about that. And you may already have the property which already starts to say a lot about what the building is. And the other... The other problem with all of that is once a developer or whoever it is has owns the property and or, or and and has that financing in place, which they have to get all of that done before they hire the architect. Sometimes, um, but once all of that's done, the, the the clock is on, the time is ticking, and all of the money is and all of the risk is at the highest point, and so they want to go, and and that's where the pressure generally comes from. Most architects' clients who are just like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's get this done tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So you had a pretty advanced start because you, I, that, so if anybody from my pro practice class is watching or listening right now, warning, because I just got a great idea for our, our next class, but <laughs> you had to show up with a hundred thousand um, dollars. So that, that's a pretty advanced start for anybody that, you know, is in the audience right now that's thinking about um, uh, maybe becoming a developer or maybe dabbling in something uh, you're doing that in school at that point. So how do you go from there to writing the book, Architect and Developer? Um, you know, it, it originally was only going to be uh, interviews. Like I, I just I wanted to be able to talk to people. And I started doing that process and, and interviewing people and putting that together. And then I started reading a lot of textbooks um, <laughs> really boring textbooks, but a lot of them are really informative. Um, the Urban Land Institute actually does put out really good, genuine products um, that are worth the $100 they are, that they cost. Um, and, and wanting to try to dissect a lot of that information to something that's a little more digestible to architects, um, even though there's no pictures in it. Uh, there's no pictures in the book at all, but there's tries to be a, at least a little bit entertaining uh, and and, and just little hits of like, how, how do you work through a port format in a very uh, ABC kind of way? Um, and what, what does NOI, ROI and all of this stuff mean? And what does it mean to other people? And if anything else, even if you don't, if, if you're quasi interested in any of this stuff, if you don't go out and do it, what it does do, it, it, it enables you to have these discussions with your own clients about what it is that they're doing and where their, where their pain points are and how to sort of resolve those as an architect, as a regular commissioned architect. That I mentioned this earlier in the week, but on your website, architectanddeveloper.com, uh, for those of you um, out there, I'll, I'll put it up in a caption, but it's architect and developer all spelled out, smashed together like one word.com. Um, I, I believe it's, 
It's on the front page. You have a, uh, an article or, or something called books, and there's a lot of resources under there, which I think you talk about the ULI resources uh, in that in that post or that article. Uh, there's a wealth of, of knowledge in that post, like James is saying. I mean, he's just got book after book after book, and he's collected uh, interviews and videos and, and all, all sorts of resources. So if you want to know more, go to architectanddeveloper.com and find those uh, great wealth of knowledge there. So as, as you were doing these interviews and you were learning these things and assembling this knowledge, which of course became, came your book. And for those of you that missed this at the beginning, the name of James's book is Architect and Develop, a guide to initiating projects, which I, I love the self-initiating part of the, the subtitle there. How did you, how, how did you go from there? Or maybe, maybe, maybe my timeline is off at this point, but how did you get from that point to actually starting to do some of your own projects and, and getting into the development side of things? Yeah, I guess a lot of it was trying to figure out how, how to do it, how to like, you know, I was looking at the work, especially in New York City. Uh, if you guys have seen the work of Alloy or DDG, um, Alex Barrett, they're, they're really good. Like these guys are doing really amazing works of architecture. Some of the DDG work is very, either you love it or you hate it. Like I've seen a lot of people online really hate it. There's the, um, architecture shaming community on Facebook and their work gets on there every once in a while. But like, man, I loved it. Um, it's very inventive. Um, but, and I, I'm like, how did these guys get to there? And then if you look at like the real deal, which is a, a, a magazine in the city for real estate, commercial real estate and residential real estate, um, the top 10 sales in Brooklyn is published every year. And the last couple of years, either DDG or Alloy is number one through five every single year. They're selling the highest, most expensive real estate in Brooklyn at the same time. Uh, and it's like, well, how, what, what's going on? I mean, you meet these guys. They're also really just great guys. And, uh, and, and the reality is they all started really small. They all started really humble in the backside of Brooklyn or backside of somewhere else. Did a very small project just to try to make it successful. Uh, and a lot of times they ended up self-performing a lot of these things to keep the prices down, uh, and to, to make it a real, real project. Um, and so what I kind of learned through a lot of this process is what a lot of these guys did in the founding of all of it and, and how how they were able to to really get off the ground and, and get running. Uh, and some of them were a little more forthcoming than others on, on uh, you know, Hybrid Arc out of Seattle said that in his very first project, he was able to pull out $80,000. And that $80,000 of cash was his seed money for his next project, which he lost $30,000. But then he took that $50,000 and got to the next project, which then he was able to like get bigger, a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Um, and so I took all of that information to try to understand, for me, what was the most basic way through this. Um, and that's what I really promote is keeping it, keep it simple, the KISS rule, keep it simple, stupid, and to start small and to take the smaller risks and try to build up for that. So for me, um, you know, my wife and I, we, we live in New York City. We work in New York City in a very tiny apartment. Um, and, and at one point we decided that we wanted to, um, try and, you know, find a place for the weekend, uh, a, a little outside of the city and also as a, as an excuse for our first project. And so we spent months looking around on the, uh, outer burbs of the, of New York and settled on a town called Beacon, which is an hour north. It's a very artsy town. There's a, um, a big museum, art museum here. It's got a lot of tourists coming from the city every day, um, especially on the weekends. Uh, and we have a mountain and, and basically we found, we spent another six months looking for property and 
lost bid after bid after bid in a, in a really heartbreaking kind of scenario. Finally got this perfect spot, perfect property that our realtor called us on a Saturday night. We were heading out to a party, called us around 11 p.m. said, can you be here tomorrow? We said yes. Um, she found a property that was under a little bit undervalued, and it's a house on a double lot. The house is from 1890, hasn't been touched in 50 years. It was an old, older woman who passed away. This was perfect. This was exactly what we were looking for because the, the house is priced appropriately, but as a house, it has two lots. And so basically the idea is that we, we, we bought the property. We were, able, we, we were the first ones to see it. We, we made an, uh, we made an offer before it ever went on to Zillow. Uh, we bought the piece of property. Um, we're renovating it right now. Hopefully it'll be finished very, very soon. Um, and then by the spring of next year, we'll break ground on the other lot to basically using that as free land to build a freestanding house. Uh, we'll sell this one, move into that one. Uh, take the $200,000 and, and our $250,000 per person in capital gains, exclusionary tax benefits. Um, and, uh, and then move on from there to a little bit bigger for a duplex or a triplex or something like that. And basically move up scale each, each different time. Um, but by doing it this way, by buying a single family house, the risk is super low. Any bank is going to give you a loan, especially right now. Uh, mortgages are very cheap. Um, to do a construction loan in a new house, uh, you can also just get typical bank financing. As a homeowner, it's very easy. Going to the city to getting all the permitting, I, I went to the city and I'm like, listen, I'm the architect, I'm the contractor, and I'm the homeowner. And he was like, great, let me see your drawings. And he just stamped them and he handed them right back to me. And he was like, have fun. Uh, he, the inspector comes by every once in a while and he's a, he just chats with me. He's a great guy. It's easy peasy because I'm taking all the risk. I own the place uh, and I'm doing all the work. It's my license. Like As long as I'm doing anything egregious, it's fine. So the barrier to entry is very low. Um, and I think that's the, that's the thing a lot of people don't don't think about is that it's actually not that hard because you all have to live somewhere. Why don't you just live? Why don't you just use that to your advantage and leverage it? That is what uh, DDG did. That is what Alloy did. They lived in their very first project. And most of the people that I talked to all live in their subsequent projects because even if you have a eight unit building or a 10 unit building, you'll generally need some sort of lease ups before you get those big construction loans. And if you're, you yourself are signing on that lease, you're a person, you have an income, you have a business, uh, you're, 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 it's legitimate and the banks will see that and they'll help sign and that'll help you get that loan for that, that next construction project. That's, that's a great example. It, you know, <laughs> you, you said one thing, of course, that, that made me, uh, tickled me a little bit. You said, and we have a mountain. That's one thing that no one in Indianapolis has ever said. So congratulations. <laughs> when you come out of New York, New York City's actually got a great range of things. There's beaches on one side, there's mountain, there's Connecticut. Uh, and so you got to like kind of figure out what you want in your backyard. And so we had to make that decision. We chose mountain. Okay. That's great. That's great. So Catherine, yeah, we have the uh, question. Well, yeah, I think you pretty much just answered this question, but here was one of the questions that people, a lot of people were asking, and um, Javier has said this morning, how do you find the resources to fund the projects? I think that's a that's a, a common thing that I, you know, I myself was always curious about in the beginning when I started looking into this, and nearly all my friends always asked me the same thing, is that like, I'm an architect, I don't have any money. It's like, nobody spends their own money on a house. Not even a not even a billionaire is going to spend cash on building a house. You know why interest rates are so low? Why would you do that? You can put that billion dollars to work somewhere else and and take out a bank loan and make and it's it's financially it's more feasible. Like it's it's the better way to do it. Uh, most of your pro if any of you guys work on commercial projects or larger projects, you're probably used to rec a requisition process uh, where your clients have to get a bank loan and build a building. 
you yourself will have to get a bank loan. The money that goes to make a building is called a capital stack. And I think, Jeff, you were talking about that earlier this week on, on the context and clarity. And a capital stack is basically just um, the accumulation of all the money that's going to be required to make a building. Now, the vast majority of time, the substantial amount of that capital stack is bank financing. It's just a loan. It's like a mortgage. Um, and that might be different. It might be 70%. It might be 80% of the overall fees you might need. It's not nearly ever going to be 100%. The banks did that before 2008. They won't do it again. Um, but you, that's that's part of the money, right? So now you just got to come up with the rest of it. Now, the rest of that is where you got to get creative on how you're going to get it. Um, it can be similar to like a mortgage where you put 20% down. You can get an FHA, FHA mortgage and put 3.5% down. You can get a 203K loan, which is an FHA approved mortgage from the government of the United States of America, backed by Fannie Mae. And for 3.5% down, you can get enough money to buy a piece of property and renovate it. Um, and that's what some people have done. It is a very low barrier to entry way of doing it. Um, I considered doing it. Ultimately, we, we didn't do it on this one. But um, you basically just want to try to get the – you don't need money to do a project. You just need the delta between the money the bank will gonna get, is going to get you and what you need for the rest. And that might be, that's where people do get investors. That's where people do, maybe it's cash from your sal from your salary job or your other businesses. Um, that's where people have looked into crowdfunding now. That's where people are trying to find all kinds of other ways of generating that last 20 to 30%. Many architects are using their architectural fees uh, to go to the bank. As long as you have, this is very, this is a lot, very convoluted conversation, but like if you have, you need to basically make multiple types of businesses to make all this work, right? You need your architecture business, you need to develop a business, maybe you have a contracting business, all of that. You put contracts together between all yourself, so you need to write yourself a contract and build yourself an invoice, and if you do that for your architectural fees and for the, the fees, the, the time that you're going to have to spend as the architect, not as a developer, going to the city, getting the permits, and doing all of that, uh, that's real value. And you, if you make a invoice to yourself and you pay that invoice, you can take that to the bank and said, listen, I've already spent 7% of all of the required money on, on this architecture that I've seen myself, but it's this company and I've already spent that money. I've also already bought the property and that represents 15% of the, of the value. So now I'm already at the 20 something percent of, 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 of everything you need. Can you just give me the last piece? I think I already have enough value in here. Sometimes the answer is yes. Um, sometimes the answer is okay, but maybe like five thousand more dollars. And that's all it takes. Like a lot of these guys, they're able to start a project on not too much money. Like you can really start small and, and, and try to crank up the lever a little bit on the first few projects. Um, I think that's the better way to do it. Except you don't want to get too far ahead of your skis and do a seven million dollar project right off the bat. I mean, I think that's what Lance Psycho and them did. They they started off pretty big. Um, I wouldn't do that. But um, for these smaller projects, it doesn't take much. And then you know, you had mentioned Jeff on um, the byline of the book, the, the self self initiating work. I mean, my whole thing on that is not always about it's not always about getting that loan and making the money. There's Moss Design out of um, they're out of Cambridge, I think, uh, but they recently opened up an office in Poughkeepsie, New York, and their whole impetus right now is they go and find out what Poughkeepsie needs. Uh, what what does the city need? What what if we had this thing here, this project there, this thing there? They figured out, they design it, they figure out how much money it's gonna it's gonna take to do all of that, and then they go they go find the money. They find investors, they find government grants, they find funding in other ways, and they make the project happen. That's not necessarily the same as like what Jonathan Siegel is doing and everything like that, but it's very much self-initiating stuff. Um, Catherine Darnstadt out of Chicago is doing the similar had done similar things on making little community parks by just like raising money and then going to the city and say, hey, look, I've 
raising this money, could we make these parts? And they'd say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll put the rest of the money down in. Uh, and then suddenly she has a part to design and her little part of Chicago gets an amenity. I mean, it's, it's money's out there. It's not always about just like, where can I get some cash and, and, and make several million dollars worth of building? Uh, that's not how it usually works. It's usually a, it's this capital stack of a whole bunch of different parts of money that come together to make, make projects happen. So someone someone had an idea this morning. We don't know whether it's feasible or not, but um, Michael Jern wanted to know if you could partner with a landowner to avoid having to finance the land during development. So somehow make the landowner um, involved with the whole development so that you don't actually have to spend money on the land until it's time to build. So the, Absolutely. The I mean, brings their equity to it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be the, that would be their equity into the project. At the end of the day, I don't think the bank is going to care that you personally have, they, they just care that the project has the equity. Uh, and, and if you're, if you're partnering with another person, you probably want to create your own little LLC or whatever for that partnership of those two people. And then that partnership owns the land, even though maybe you, your stake in that partnership is, you know, the, the, the other percent that doesn't include the land. Maybe your stake in the partnership is 30% and there's 70% because they're bringing the land. But then that land gets you, that equity percent that you need for the bank. And a lot of times if you're able to get, so for example, for us, you know, we got this land basically free because it was, it, we bought a house that already had it included. Um, and so what that means, but we can't just go straight to the bank and say, Hey, look, we have this van, this, this land. They'll be like, it's not, it's worth nothing. You literally pay nothing for it. But if you sit on it for, I think it's like a year to two years, it's called seasoning. Uh, suddenly the, the, what you paid for it two years ago is irrelevant now. Now it's like, okay, well, what's a pump? Well, that piece of land goes for $180,000 otherwise in the city. So uh, that has a huge value. And so that's a large percentage of whatever your construction cost is going to be. There you go. You got your 20%, your 30%. Yeah. You know, a lot of these, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. When, when we had the topic yesterday of what's stopping you, what's holding you back, I fully expected that the very first comment, the very first thing was going to be, was going to be money. And so, uh, you know, we get into this conversation, totally understandable why, uh, I mean, you, you just rattled off and we've got several people commenting, uh, this, this is going to be worth two or three or four listenings, you know, going back to this, which is fantastic. Um, there's a lot of information here and a lot of strategies that we're touching on. Now you've probably heard of Zaha Hadid Architects. They're one of the world's best known firms and when it comes to innovation, they're big fans of pushing boundaries. The team at ZHA has started using Twinmotion, a simple real-time ArcViz tool that lets you instantly visualize ideas and clearly communicate those ideas to stakeholders. ZHA designer Marco Magetta says that, the benefits of using Twinmotion for designers are the simplicity of the interface, the playfulness with which you can articulate your scenes, and not having to worry about all the technical aspects that real-time usually brings, like light maps, PBR workflows, or other technical details. Marco also loved Twinmotion Cloud, which lets any member of the team access a project from their web browser without a single download or installation. The project manager can access the model, review it, and immediately give you feedback anytime from anywhere, says Marco. To download your exclusive free trial, head to twinmotion.link clarity. 
That's twinmotion.link slash clarity. Monograph is building a community of like-minded firm owners and operations leaders who are looking for solutions that align with their firm's values. On top of that, Monograph is building the only cloud-based practice operations software built exclusively for architects by architects. Monograph's easy-to-use and beautifully designed software allows you and your team to know in near real time whether you are on pace to deliver a project on budget. With Monograph, you and your team can plan project schedules, budgets, role assignments, and team members all in one place. What's the best part of Monograph? And this is a big one for me. It doesn't require a degree in finance to use. To experience the difference today, sign up for a free trial at monograph.com. And to underscore their commitment to the architecture community, on August 12th, Monograph will be hosting their first ever virtual conference. It's called Section Cut. This one-day event brings firm owners, operations leaders, and project leaders together to learn from success stories and workshops, all with a goal of improving their business. Reserve a seat at Section Cut today by visiting sectioncut.com. So one question is, maybe we've got an audience of an awful lot of architects here. Some some in the audience won't be right. They'll be from other professions and things. But a lot of them, a lot of this audience is architects. So if we assume that today they are an architect, but they are not a developer, what is the toughest part of making the transition from? Forgive me, everybody, but I'm going to put I'm going to put this in quotes. Just an architect to architect and developer what's the what's the toughest part about making that transaction or transition from one to, one to both, maybe. It's got to be. It's got to be the uh, taking on the risk or, or having an appetite for mm-hmm. risk, because that's that's. But that's that's this that's the that's the whole thing, right? Like, I think that's what money aside. I think money is the quick snap thing that people first come to when you think about all this. But after if they think about it for more than five seconds, then they'll probably start to think about risk. They'll think about losing the shirts. They'll think about, oh my god, like I knew of a guy who developed a thing and lost the business and blah blah blah, whatever. Um. You guys are, I think it's understood. Architects have a lot of risk. They have a lot of upside, right? And they're because they're getting paid for that risk. You're forgetting the fact that architects have just as much risk, but we're, 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 our upside is capped to a fixed fee. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Um, you can, you know, if that building leaks or there's water coming in the basement of, of a, of a project that you're an architect of record on, like you're going to get called on that. If anything goes wrong in any of our past buildings, we're going to get sued. Uh, if our project has been done for six months, we don't have any more payment coming in. Client's still going to call me and absorb my time. But at the end of the day, all an architect does is sell time. Uh, and so it's like, what am I supposed to do? Not take the call? There's no more fees coming in. What if the what if the client stops paying? What if they pay late and you still have to pay your staff? Like the risks are so high on being an architect. Uh, and that's just an architect as a as as a owner. Like if you're an architect and you're an employee, there's still a lot of risks. You're you're, you're risk you're selling. <laughs> you could get fired tomorrow. Like the two, the last couple of, uh, in the last year, so many offices cut salaries by 20%. That's a pretty big risk and you have no control over that. You're just an employee. Like all, there's so much risk in our profession and in everybody's lives that they may not necessarily realize that they're really undertaking. Um, the difference in a developer is that they're factoring that in and they're just getting, that's the whole, I'm getting paid for it thing. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just absorbing that, understanding it, 
and jumping on it. And I think that does take a specific mindset, which I just happen to be all in on. Um, I, like I said, I moved to Germany, uh, without speaking German and got a job and my boss thought that was hilarious. And that was part of the reason he hired me and put me in front of all of his clients. Um, but you know, you got to have that sort of go getter attitude to do that, I think, but not, I don't know. It's not for everyone for sure. Well, it, you used a word here a minute ago. You said control, and I think that's a big thing, right? I, as architects, oh, yeah. as, you know, you just described it, right? You're going to do the, the the design, the the CDs, go through CA. The thing is substantially complete, but you're still on the hook, and you have no control, no real control over the way it was constructed, yeah. uh, any of the things. Um, and and I think having control, and I, you know, I mentioned earlier of done a little bit of this and i always thought that the more that we did the more that we performed the more that we had control over as long as we were doing our jobs and we were paying attention to the things that we needed to pay attention to the actual more control we had over the risk and i thought that was sort of the ultimate payoff but well financially <laughs> certainly but where the, where the circle really comes around, though, is when you realize that when the, the architects, the architect and developers that are really big, EDG and Alloy, uh, I keep coming back to them, but there's so many of them, um, they hire architects like that. Nice. Because why would they take on that risk for a stupid low fee? Like, it's just built in. And they can just, like, wait, wait, here's one I can just buy my way out of for, for a couple of percentage points. No problem. So everybody in the uh, in the audience is now trying to get their head wrapped around what you just said. Hopefully, you heard that he said that these architects, as developers, who maybe have moved more towards the development development side now, are hiring architects of record for their projects because they understand of the my words the absurdity of the risk on the architect side. So. So Gorilla Development has done amazing stuff out of Portland. Uh, they're really big on the, they started, they were really the first ones that did crowdfunding, but in the crowdfunding of a, of a regulation DUA. Um, and they, um, his very first project was really wild. He, 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 he was able to acquire a piece of property and he wanted to develop a building and he went through, he was an employee of an office, of a mid-sized office. He went to his boss and said, can I hire you as my architect and can then I work on that job as the project manager? And his boss was like, okay, here's a contract. They signed it. And so at the, you know, every other week he would, he would get a little paycheck and then sign a big check to his boss. But it was his way of actually mitigating the risk of all of the problems of being an architect on a job. That's a pretty amazing story. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely interesting and, and weird. It's a, it's a very, it's one I hadn't heard before. There's a lot, I mean, but there's a lot of these guys. That's the thing is they're not, they're not using their cleverness or their intelligence to design a better box. Um, they're using it to design a way of putting money together and making a project happen. And a lot of these guys have done, and girls have done really interesting things in that way. Uh, Synecdoche um, out of Ann Arbor she has started approaching businesses in Ann Arbor that she knew was going to take off the ground and approach them ahead of time and, 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 and started telling, asking them, Hey, do you, do you have an architect yet? Can we go look at properties together? Can we do all this stuff? And then she ends up owning a small percentage of their business moving forward. So she does this sort of foregrounding of, of finding them property, finding a way to make the property work for them, uh, and then designing it. And then she takes a little bit part of the building of it and then owns a piece of it at the end of the day and collects, collects rent. Like it's, it's an interesting way of designing a way to make the project happen rather than just trying to design the building. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great structure. So here's a here's a question that is, I just want to know the answer to it when when it came up this morning. So, um, what's the scariest or most risky project you've undertaken? I mean, you you'd mentioned earlier that people don't talk about the ones that don't work out that well. You really don't hear about them. So, yeah. So I mean, um, I. Uh, I, I, I got. I'll stop say, talking about DDG after this, uh, and I hope nobody from their office, Peter Guthrie, is not listening. Um, I promise. But anyways, uh, it's kind of well known now that they're they they started scaling up, 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 up. And there's this project they got that just finished construction. There's just finished construction on the Upper East Side of the city on 88th Street, um, and their concrete subcontractor bankrupted as that building was like halfway in the air. And that is a very big building, and that had a lot of money into it, and DDG was all in on that, and there was no way they could fail. And so that building became, I don't even know what's going on in the world of DDG right now. I know that they they de-staffed a ton of people. They've scaled way down. They've had to cut corners, and I believe that, I don't know if Peter Guthrie's out now, but I've heard rumors that he will be out soon, um, because that, that as a business model, that was maybe a little bit too far. Um, but they, they sort of reached, they reached an area where they could no longer build the building with the money that they had. Um, they definitely went out ahead of their skis and, and because of, because it was such a big building and it was only halfway done at the time when the most expensive subcontractor defaulted, there wasn't a lot you could do other than spend a whole, whole ton of money to, to, to get the building done. Um, obviously if that, when that building sells, uh, as it's selling now, uh, they should recoup all of that fee by by a ton, but I don't know whether or not that's happening. It, I think it's another thing to wait for another year year or two to to figure out. It's gonna be interesting to watch. I know there's an Alex Barrett has also had a little bit of issues in scaling up. He he did two big. He scaled up a little too fast as well. Did two projects at the same time that were massive, and and had to scale down his staff, get rid of his office and everything as he's trying to sell these units out. Um, but as long as they sell, he should be totally fine. And he, uh, he's a good guy. So it should be should be good, but there's a moment in here where a lot of these guys are really on the edge of their toes with all of their money. So, but kind of segues into Isra's comment because she, you know, someone going bankrupt in the middle of the project. How do you? Uh, Isra wants to know how do you find reliable subcontractors? I wish I could tell you where my electrician is right now. I've been calling him every single day for the last. Weeks, sorry. Um, but uh, subcontractors are very difficult. I suggest waiting another 30 or 40 years until robots start building buildings because at least they'll show up every day. Um, <laughs> Maybe you don't have to wait that long. Someone could start working on that. It's There's a lot of people working on that. What do you think Autodesk is doing and why they're not creating the next Revit? They're not interested in the next Revit. They're interested in building buildings. Um, the um, the so that's so hard. Like it is so hard to find any subcontractors right now, mainly because there's it's so it's such a hot market, and there's so many other things for them to do. And I've been on many job sites as the architect, uh, where the sub, subs just quit because there's more money to be made elsewhere, and and it's like it's such a pain in the butt because it just drives up cost and delays everything because somebody doesn't want to do the job that they were contracted to do. Um, it, it's so hard. And I think that's what drives a lot. That's what drives a lot of these guys who are developing buildings to also self-perform work. That is why a lot of these guys are also builders, um, besides being architects and developers. That's why Glock Plus builds a lot of their stuff is because at the end of the day, it gets so, it, it gets so frustrating to watch somebody do such a bad job for so much money. And you're like, well, wait a second. I can just do that myself. And as an, as a, as a firm owner, you realize that why am I paying this, this, 
this carpenter eighty thousand, the equivalent of eighty thousand, ninety thousand dollars a year, when I can I can hire a recent graduate from architecture school for like forty thousand. Uh, and that guy is going to be he's going to work twelve hours a day, and he's going to be super excited, and he's going to go hang that door just perfect. Um, so to be honest, that's a lot of why Block Plus and a lot of these other offices do this, uh, design build and have a lot of staff on hand is because at the end of the day. Young architects are cheaper than carpenters, and they'll do a much. They'll have a lot more passion and actually do the job right. Wow. Okay. So the answer is young architecture school graduates who are still willing to work fourteen hours a day. I honestly, <laughs> God, it really is. It re- they are really a good deal. Like it, it, they're really excited. They want to get in there. They want to learn. And a lot of the work that these subcontractors do is not difficult. It's just it, it's hard to motivate subcontractors right now. Huh, that's actually a pretty interesting idea for a company, like a design build company made it all up. What do you think I'm going to do? (laughs) Whoops. Yeah, Yeah. I I mean, I I think those are all good points. And ultimately, it's, you know, it's all about building the right team. Now, you know, take, sorry, apologies to everybody for a sports analogy, but if, you know, if you're somebody like the Chicago Cubs or the Chicago Bears and you can't for the life of you put together uh, the right players at the right time, then you're going to really struggle. But, uh, and it's, and it's not necessarily easy to put them together, but that's, that's ultimately what we have, <clears throat> excuse me, what we have to attempt to do. And, um, again, I'm going down the baseball road, but I'm going deeper. Sorry, everybody. Uh, the Atlanta Braves built their dynasty in the nineties on their farm team. So almost everybody from the World Series uh, Atlanta Braves came from the farm team, which would be the equivalent of the recent architecture grads. Yep. I I grew up in Houston, so I hated the Braves in the nineties. <laughs> this out of every freaking World Series. <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> well, I'm happy to beat my trash can. Cheating's winning. That's all I care. Um, <laughs> so we'll try to. Here. So Rod wants to know if you could talk a bit about the developers who have tied community enriching elements into their developments. I, there's there's definitely a lot of that. So you know um, a big difference between many develop historically a lot of developers came from a construction background and more in the last decade or two it's or a couple of decades it's been more of a financial background. So people who are historically just developers have an MBA or something like that. Uh, architecture school tends to facilitate, as you guys know, a lot of more social agendas, uh, a little more left-leaning and, and things that we care about things. We just want to make a better place for all of us, really. Um, and so a lot of these guys who are architects and developers, they're probably doing a little more for all of us than the straight developers. Um, there's some good examples out there. Like I said, Catherine Darnstadt is really focused on a lot of that stuff from Moss Design. Um, Guerrilla Development, uh, their second crowdfunding campaign was really interesting because it was a, they were raising $300,000 as part of a capital stack. And again, all, none of these, I want to be very clear, there was no buildings that crowdfunded the entire capital stack. All of them were literally crowdfunding the mezzanine debt, which is just that little piece that they need to then go to the bank and say, hey, look, I've got this amount of money. And so Kevin, uh, raised $300,000 in three days. Um, and, and it was for a project that was going to be an, uh, SRO for homeless people in Portland. And it was going to give homeless people a very cheap, very cost effective place to live. And that, and, and the, his target rent was the exact state amount that the state of Oregon was giving homeless people that said, Hey, if you can find a place to live for, I think it was like $400 a month, we'll give you this $400 voucher 
And so Kevin was like, well, how do I make a place that can give you a room for $400? Um, and so he figured out the money, but the only way to make that work was to do this crowdfunding and offer people a 5% return, which is a very low return, especially right now in the stock market, you can make way more than 5%. So if you're a typical developer and a typical person and you want to, you're trying to raise money, nobody's going to give you an investment for a 5% return. It's just not enough, especially not in real estate where there are risks. Um, but because his had a social agenda and a social slant to it, he raised the money in three days because at the end of the day, people would rather have take a lower return for a social cause than, than just go for maximum money. Uh, and I thought that was a very interesting way that Kevin was able to handle the situation. Beyond that, there's other, in, in the city, there's Alloy that has a lot of amenities and some other developments, but some of it, like the schools, are really just um, an incentive to all developers in New York City, whereas uh, the city of New York has not financed a school in the last two or three decades. Every single school that's been built is, is built under a... Um, uh, a program where if a developer includes a school in their building and pays for it completely, they're allowed to build a much taller. So like the shop tower that, that split and everything like that, they all have a school in the basement and that's the way that they were able to build up so high. So Alloy is currently building a very super tall tower in Brooklyn and the way they were able to get that height was by building a school at the bottom, which is a, it's a public amenity, but it's just kind of a developer tool that a lot of developers use. That's really interesting. And so that's, I assume that's a pretty New York, New York specific example. It's a clever way for the city to get new schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of new schools all throughout the city and it's all because of that. Interesting. So Ed Ed had a question. I don't know if we have time to address it, but it's still an interesting question about an, um, an MBA in real estate development. Is that kind of program worth it? I, so a lot more schools are coming onto this. I think Columbia, I think Columbia was really one of the first schools to have a more integrated, uh, um, architecture school and real estate together as a program. Um, and, and then Berkeley came on and there's a lot of other ones too. Now at Yale, there's a, you can do an architecture school half and then get an MBA and a, a mark at the same time. Um, and now I see a lot more schools trying to do it. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, for one, the MBA is getting more watered down as a degree, uh, in general. Uh, number two, um, my friends, I know several people that have gone through these programs. They've all come out the other end and they just work for a developer. Like they just become developers, like an actual developer or they work for one. Um, so if that's what you want to do, that's probably a good angle. Uh, your architectural knowledge will be valuable to them. Um, but if for you to go and spend the time there, I mean, I would only do it if you're also going to be very, I wouldn't do it in the Zoom world. I would go there to be integrated into an environment to, you know, business school is about making friends, really. It's about doing all the extracurriculars outside of business school. It's not about being in the classroom. It's about being on the rowing crew and and, and the hockey team and, and going and doing events together and, and making lifelong friends and, and bouncing ideas off each other and learning from each other. It's it, um so if you're going to do it, I would make sure to do it in an environment like that. And obviously, if you want to do it at the highest end, Wharton is the best school for real estate in America. Uh, and and that would be a really invaluable experience. One of the partners, AJ, which is one of the partners of Alloy, uh, has a Wharton degree. Um, so, I mean, that's it can be valuable as long as you do it right. So <laughs> just, just now you said that you, you could be a real developer. So what is the difference between an architect developer and a developer? I meant for like a, for a, a company who is just this, they're just developers. They're yeah, just, they're just they're developers. Hire, they hire, they hire right. architects to do the work. And I have lots of friends that have gone that route. Um, they were initially paid much better than we were out of graduate school. Um, although that starts to change after, I mean, architect salaries do jump up after time, uh, especially in New York. Um, 
as long as you jump around enough. Um, and um, but their lives are generally not as pleasant. They don't seem as happy as we do. I guess I don't know. <laughs> that's, okay. that's interesting. No, uh, Mark about and Brian, but uh, I love them, but they don't seem happy. <laughs> Mark says, uh, "Take the money for the the MBA and bring it to the bank for a loan." Honestly, you could probably might. Yeah, I thought about that myself. I thought about going back and getting an MBA and doing another degree and spending more time in college. But you know, honestly, it's going to be cheaper for me to, to flip a house and build a house uh, than it is to go to school. It's actually going to be the inverse. I'll actually make more money than I would have gone and gotten a job or whatever. Um, and I feel like you're going to learn just as much by doing. Yeah, by doing it. At the end of the day, yeah. a big building and a small building is you buy it for X, you put in Y, and you try to make sure you get more than that at the end of the day, at the end of the project. And you can you can do that in an academic sense and, and, and everything and and spend a lot of money on that. Or you can just go do it and figure it out. And as long as you do it, in my whole point about doing it on an existing house is, is the risk is super low because if you fuck it up, just go sell it. Sorry, I cuss a lot. Uh, if, if, you, if you mess it up, you, you just resell it. A house has value, and in the time of COVID, anything will sell. It doesn't really matter. Um, and so, if you lost five thousand dollars, or ten thousand, or twenty thousand dollars, that's still cheaper than an MBA. Um, uh, but odds are, you may be able to, if you're smart enough, you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars or something. Like it's, it's not so hard. So, in your work right now, how much would you classify as traditional architecture practice versus? Uh, architect as developer or or is there any um well right yeah right now i think there's actually less architecture because it's to me that that part is easy and fast and and just make you know i i think a lot of time people already have ideas in their heads about how they would do something or, or design something and so it's you know it's a matter of carrying through that process but a lot of it is uh mentally is is figuring out all of the other things of making the project happen and getting it done do you have any clients right now or are you your own client on all your projects? I do have some clients. The, the problem right now with clients is, um, is like how much, how much do you charge them? Right. Cause like, I don't, I'm not trying to be competitive, but the, the bigger, the, here's the bigger problem. Um, somebody recently was, was giving me a comment on, on my fees being a little high, right? They wanted my fees to be lower because they can get their, this done somewhere else. Well, my time is actually worth more for myself than it is for somebody else. Um, and I think that's a, the, the bigger barrier to entry here is the, t the money, the risk, but it's really the time. It's the time that you, it takes to do all of this. But once you start hiring yourself, you realize that you're more valuable to yourself than you are to somebody else. And so why would I, why would I charge that? I'm going to make what with working at per hour for this guy when for myself, I can make way more. Uh, and, and if I, if I spend all of my time working for other clients, then I'm at risk for screwing all of this other stuff up and, and screwing up my own projects, uh, which is not good to me. So basically I, I, I have to lose clients by giving very high bids and seeing if they'll take it. And if they'll take it, then that's literally, it's the cost of my time. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, believe it or not, we've made it almost to the top of the hours <laughs> flown by here. Um, so maybe, maybe the way to round out this conversation is to ask, um, do you have a piece of advice or, you know, some advice for any of the architects that are in the audience right now that are ready, you know, or, or think they're ready to start 
to take the leap? What advice? And and I think, I think, I think uh, one of the, you know, one of the advices I got on just starting a practice in general from ARO and then subsequently what I learned from talking with um, the Up Studio New York, which I think are a fantastic group of guys, is that you have to do what you want to do. Like if you ultimately want to do high-end residential houses, you need to go develop a high-end residential house because that's what's going to get you the work later. If you spend all of your time doing stuff that you don't want to do, you will continue to do stuff that you don't want to do because that's what everybody is going to pay attention to. Um, the Up Studio is fantastic. You guys got to go to their website. It's theupstudio.com. Um, they started with the development because they were doing these not so great renovation projects because that's all people would hire them for. And they, they bought a piece of land. They built a really cool modern house that had nothing to do with anything they had done before. And then people started hiring them left and right. And now their work is fantastic. And now they are really a hot shot design studio in the city. All the, and nobody was going to see that beforehand. You know, they only got that by going out there and doing it themselves. And they're, I don't think they're developing anymore. They're interested in that. They just wanted to build that billboard so that way they could, um, they could be the architect that they wanted to be. Yeah, that's a super cool story. And that's we run across that all the time. How do I break into this? How do I find more clients like this? There's a great example of of uh, the way that they did it. Appreciate there that been, story. There, there have been a couple questions about either should you build something and hold on to it, or should you then rent it out? So, kind of this example of building this house that you want everybody to see. If they and I, recently there was an article about architects making buildings and then. Airbnb, keeping them for Airbnb so a lot of people can be exposed to them. It just reminded me of that. So what would you generally say? Does this depend on the project? Is it better to sell? Like hold yeah. or sell? It's probably going to be part of the pro forma and figuring out what financially makes sense. Unfortunately, rent, renting is just so hard to, to make like uh, in, in this country. Like you, you make a building, it costs the, the Rental market is set by the, it, the rental market is what it is, right? Like if people spend two thousand dollars a month on rent, they're not going to spend twenty four hundred in that area. Like you can get there's certain top ends, but like it's going to cap out, and so you can only build something. It's really hard to build something and capitalize on it correctly unless you're building a certain scale. Um, I think long term building it and holding it and renting it is a better solution for you to have a sort of passive income. Uh, and moving all of that along, but it, it comes with added risks and management, and all that stuff as well. But in the beginning, most people tend to build and sell because they need to refill their coffers. They need to get that cash so they can build the next project. Um, holding it and renting it is difficult to do in the beginning because you just you just need that money to move on to the next project. That's great advice and a great great experience there. Um, you got a lot of resources out there, James. You've got your book, obviously. You've got the Architect and Developer website. Um, there's an Architect and Developer Slack channel. What's that about? Yep, I was just trying to uh, jump on that bandwagon of people on Slack. We have we have that. Uh, anybody wants to join that, I can let them in. Uh, every once in a while, there's conversations happening. Uh, not too often. I wish more. Um, you guys can also always reach out to me on Architect Developer, James at ArchitectDeveloper.com. Um, and any questions you have, I'm happy to talk to, happy to chat, any of that stuff. Great. I appreciate that. And for anybody, uh, if you want to know mo- more about the Slack channel, uh, architectanddeveloper.slack.com. Uh, the URL is on the bottom left of your screen right now. So you can check that out. Maybe you can start some conversations if it uh, if things are a little slow over there. So uh, might become a great community. 
for uh, Architect and Developer, a way for all of you to learn more uh, about that. James, this has been the number of, I'm just kind of watching the comments go by and the number of people that said, I'm going to watch this two or three or four times is, is I've never seen that, that many people say that before. So that means that you have given us a lot of knowledge bombs, a lot of great information here. Really appreciate the conversation today. It's been awesome. Man. Thanks. Uh, it's uh, again, a very popular topic, uh, not only in the entree architect community, but beyond. Uh, and welcome to all of you that are joining this conversation from beyond the entree architect architect community because you're just interested in this topic. Uh, this is Context and Clarity. We have these conversations uh, in a different form, four days a week. Thanks for listening live to this week's Context and Clarity live uh, episode. With all of Selfishly, you, the I love these conversations a, because a I get to be the go-between between, and, uh, between uh, you and some really an incredible via guests. Facebook live. To that end, I want to uh, know what you think Thursdays about today's like today, guest. We have this Message me on the socials. I'm really easy to find. I'm Jeff underscore Eccles everywhere. If you happen to run across a white-haired chiropractor from Austin, Texas, every single week, last week. Oh, and if you have an idea uh, for a had, future guest. Uh, Tell Emily me who Mottram. it is and Today, why you obviously think we have be a James good guest Petty. for Next one of these we'll conversations. Maybe we can get them on a future episode. Thanks expert. again that for listening. I appreciate yeah, you. She's a, she's a lot of fun. I'll that, see you next That doesn't week. sound like the most fun title, but she's very, she's a very fun person. She's a lot of fun. She is a lot of fun. And some of you that have done some of my challenges have met Julie in the backstage of the challenges. And you know uh, those conversations are are, uh, are fun and wild and, and – uh, and you, you'll take a lot away from that. So we'll have Julie next week. But uh, this is basically wrapping up our week of discussions about architect and developer or architect as developer. Tomorrow, in our Context and Clarity conversation, we'll go back to our biweekly feature of our mystery member spotlight. We started this a few months ago, basically Tomorrow. to get to know each other better. That's already that? tomorrow. My goodness, it's been that two is, weeks already. It just time that to is fly. already tomorrow. Yeah, it's it's flown by. So uh, yeah. I can't tell you who our member spotlight will be tomorrow because we'll play the little game. We'll have you uh, ask questions and try to guess who our member is. But it's a great way for us mm -hmm. to get to know each other, to build our community, and uh, to learn more about each other. So join us for that. Uh, we'll be on Clubhouse tomorrow morning at nine a.m. Eastern, and we do a similar thing on those uh, member spotlight. Uh, days on Clubhouse where we just, I'll start with a question. We just, you know, tell us more about yourself. Let's get to know each other a little bit better. And then next week we'll kick into business development and networking because we'll be working towards that conversation with Julie, with Julie Brown on Thursday. So again, thank you to James for joining us today. Fantastic conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, which, which I always appreciate. And uh, I know everybody else out there has uh, has echoed that over and over through this conversation. So, James, thank you for all of this. And, uh, Catherine, thank you. And to both of you, please stay safe. Uh, try to dry out a little bit in, in a water sense. You can make what other determinations <laughs> beyond that. Um, but, uh, and to all of you out there in the audience, thank you. Appreciate all of you. I say this all, of, all the time, but uh, thank you for making context and clarity a thing. Because if it weren't for you, we would not have had this conversation with James today. So appreciate all of you in this community you have built around context and clarity. And uh, always look forward to the next conversation. So be well, stay well, stay safe. 
Uh, find a little bit of time tonight to breathe, relax a little bit, find a little way to rejuvenate because we're going to do this again tomorrow. And uh, I hope that I will see all of you somewhere sometime soon. Thanks, everybody. Before we go, I want to say thank you to Twin Motion for their support of this episode of Context and Clarity Live. Visit Twin Motion today at twinmotion.link slash clarity and try Twin Motion for free. And also, thank you to Monograph for their support of this podcast episode. To reserve a seat at their first ever interactive virtual conference, visit sectioncut.com today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.